right. Good morning, everybody. Good evening, good afternoon. If you're out there catching us online, wherever, whenever, I'm so glad that you chose to join us and spend some of your time here. Um, I am super excited about this message. I know I say that a lot, um, and I do. It's almost uh, an inside joke that I say that a lot, but I'm just super joyful about teaching this message today, and it's a message that God gave me that it's obviously through Scripture, the book of Job. Uh, We're in chapter 15 today, and it's not a fun chapter. So I don't know how that becomes fun unless God is in it, unless God is showing me things, and God is showing me some things that just make me excited. Um, So again, I'm super excited and super happy, and maybe it's because I spent the night in the Holiday Inn Express last night. It's not that. We're going to get into some subjects that, that um, may not on the surface be fun. Subjects like idolatry, character assassination, verbal assault. And that was just my inbox this week. Okay. All right. Think about it. Okay. I'll rewrite that one because clearly, if you have to explain it, it doesn't know. But that's the book of Job. The book of Job, how timely for today. How many of us went through our social media or anything, and I wasn't joking necessarily about the inbox. I get, I get beat up during the week sometimes with things like that, assaults, claims on my character and things because of either misunderstandings or things that, um, things that I meant to say backing them up in Scripture that some people don't want to hear, and it's hard. So some of this message may seem like your pastor chastising you today. And so my heart wants to apologize, but I can't because so many of us need a little bit of that today. So many of us need a little bit of grounding in what God says because the more frustrating life gets, who here is frustrated or who out there is frustrated about the way life is right now? Yes, and if you're not, it may be because you're not paying attention. Or, flip side, maybe you just have peace that God's got this. But it's difficult because things are so hard. You can't just do the things that we used to take for granted in our lives anymore and just, I'm just going to go to the store. I'm just going to go to church. I'm just going to have a coffee with a friend. I'm just going to, whatever that thing is, you can't just do it like you used to. You have to think about it, and there's rules and parameters and guidelines, and, oh, i got to wear a mask, and I have to, all these things come on. And what it does is it makes every little thing we have to do irritating. Maybe that's just me, but I know some of you are that way too. Just everything that comes my way. I read a news story, and it could just be a, a, a general neutral news story, but I come at it with this lens of, let's see what's going on now. Let's see what right they're going to take away. Let's see what thing they're going to impose today. Let's see what, and that's the way I approach the information that comes my way. And if you approach everything that comes your way that way, that's what you're going to hear. That's what you're going to see, and you're going to react out of that. And I find myself falling into that category a lot. So we're in the book of Job. We're in chapter 15 now. We've been in this for a while. We started planning this It was during COVID, but at the very beginning, and nobody had any idea how long this was going to last. 
But as we go on and tempers get thin and people just get more and more irritated, we start seeing things come out that is not very Christ-like in a lot of, in a lot of cases. I'm just being honest with you. People who are good Christian brothers and sisters, solidly grounded in the word, and I see and hear things coming from them that are not something I'd be proud of to say that represents Christ in their life. I think we all need to take a step back, get off the ledge, and just think about the way Christ would have us react to these. And so when I talk about starting the book of Job months ago, I wasn't really sure how that was going to fit in with what we're all going through today. But in fact, there could be no better scripture that I think that applies more towards the struggles and the everyday things that come our way today. And so when I talk about idolatry, character assassination, verbal assault, that is all pulled straight from chapter 15 of Job, which is where we are right now today. Chapter 15. Let's get into it because there's a lot to unpack here that I think we can really apply to our lives. And if you remember last week and and in the past, I've said all Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is there because it has something to teach us. It has wisdom that we can gain. It has application for our lives. All Scripture has that, all of it. So you look at some book, there are people like, uh, Gabe and I were talking last night about Numbers, the book of Numbers. She's going, there's this one part in the book of Numbers, and it's so amazing. Every book, even those ones that we tend to dismiss and go like, uh, someday when I'm bored or maybe I'm in line at the DMV, I'll read the book of Numbers. It's not one we immediately go to. But Job is so incredible in the way that we can apply it. So this is my challenge to you. Look at this and pray about how this can be applied to your life. When we get to the end, I'm going to help you. And all the way through, I'm going to kind of help you with that. But let's let the scripture kind of speak for that. So last time, last time we were here, we've seen that Job is just under this relentless barrage from his friends. If, if it hasn't been a while, you can check in online, look at our previous messages and kind of get caught up. But bottom line, Job has, Job was a, was a good guy. Job was a good guy. He was successful in business, had a lot of friends. Um, he, was, he was wealthy. Um, he had everything going on. And even in the opening chapters, God declares Job, he says, he is righteous. Job is a blameless man. He doesn't say sinless, but he doesn't say he's blameless. He makes mistakes, but he fixes it. He makes mistakes, but he repents. That's what blameless means. God declares Job to be that man. And yet, he's going through all this crud in his life. Horrible, horrible tragedies. His three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar from far away, hear that their good buddy Job is going through some things, and they say, okay, let's, let's travel, let's go and support and encourage our friend Job. They fully intend that they're going to get there and they're going to see Job laying in a pile, which is what he was doing, but that he would be repentant, that he would say, guys, I messed up. I did some things. I had some sinful sinful thoughts. I did some things in my life that brought this upon me. Help correct me. Help me get back to this path where God can bless my life again. That's what they expected. And they were full of wisdom that would back up that. If he just came to them that way, 
boy, they could just dispense all their wisdom and fix him and go home and everybody would feel good about everything. The problem is when they got there, that's not what they found. When they got there, they found Job in a horrible state, but claiming, I didn't do anything to cause this. In fact, there's nothing in my life that I've done, nothing I can think of that caused this to happen to me. And that is simply outside the realm of understanding for these three friends. There had to have been something. Their religion, their theology, all boils down to this binary. Do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. That's it. That's the depth of their religion. And God is good. Therefore, if something bad is happening to you, you've done bad. There's no gray area. There's no in-between. They could not wrap their minds around the fact that someone could suffer without having caused it. Or, as today many of us suffer with, is this idea that you can receive grace without doing anything to earn it. Two sides of the same coin, and they couldn't get their minds around this idea no matter what. (coughs) Excuse me. So, all three of their friends take their shots, basically lining up to take their swings at Job to get him to come clean and just repent of all this, but he's not doing it. And in fact, the farther they go along, we kind of see Job becomes a little bit more resolute. Like, I know I haven't done anything to bring this upon me. You keep saying I did, and it makes sense that I did, but I know I didn't do anything. He knows what he's done. He does know this. He's confident of this. God is sovereign. God's ways are righteous. And that he himself, Job, was blameless. He knew that, but it still didn't fit the picture, and it certainly didn't fit the idea that Job's friends had to, they had to make it fit in that box. Otherwise, they had nothing. Job has wavered, but he hasn't broken under their relentless assaults, and that enrages them. Rather than to just be like, oh man, I, re- I really want to help you. I wish, I wish I had the words to say. I wish I had the right thing to say to to help you get over this hurt, to get over that. That's how a good friend would react. Hopefully, we've all had people in our lives who say, man, I, I wish I could take that away from you. I wish I could fix it. But they are on the opposite side. They're saying, look, we've got all the wisdom in the world, and it will fix you, but you got to come clean first. And they just get more and more frustrated to the point to where they are just angry. They're enraged, literally. The idea of grace, the idea of healing, the idea of unity, the idea of helping their friend has really just gone out the window. They're not even interested in Job really healing or getting beyond this anymore. They just have to prove their point. And that's where they are. It's the gloves are off and they're just coming at him. So where we've seen this gentle buildup of his friends, now We're in the second round of assaults. So everybody's taking their turn through, and they're basically coming around, and Eliphaz, it's his turn again. And here's where we are. Job 15, verses 1 and 2. We've got it on screen. I use the New American Standard, so if you have a different version, yours will read a little different. Um, But here's, here's the way it reads. Then Eliphaz the Temanite responded, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Let me decipher that a little bit. First of all, Eliphaz himself is declaring he's a wise man. He's taking that mantle on himself. I'm a wise man. 
And he's saying that what Job is saying is basically just hot air. We know that. He talks about the east wind. Wind would blow in that region, would blow in off the desert, which was to the east. When it would come in that way, that wind was hot, and it was stale, and it was just stifling. So that's just his way of saying it's all just hot air, unbearable hot air. The word himself in that scripture, Phil himself, actually translates differently depending on how you, uh, what your version says. It's a Hebrew word, and it's beten. The Hebrew word beten literally means belly. So fill his belly with the east wind. In, in other words, what he's saying, just rather crassly, he's just saying, you're just belching hot air. And should I, being a wise man, even listen to you anymore? They're done hearing his retorts and what he's got to say. Job 15, verses 3 through 5. I'll read this one argue. Should he argue with useless talk? This, the he is himself, this third person. Should he argue with useless talk or with words which do not benefit? Indeed, you do not come, you do away with reverence and hinder mediation before God. For your wrongdoing teaches your mouth and, your, and you choose the language of the cunning. You notice something that's missing there? In fact, it'll be missing throughout the rest of this chapter. Actual concrete accusations. He's shifted from this place where all their little pinpoint, well, you did this, you did that, you did this, you did that. It's not working. So what they do now is they just back up and they just go, we're just going to scatter all these just vague, vague things to assassinate your character and just hope one of them sticks. So there's no more specific um, accusations. In other words, you did this and that's causing that. That's gone because that hasn't worked. They haven't been able to make anything stick. So now they're just resorting to, in this case, Eliphaz, just character assassination. I can't prove he's evil, but I know he has to be. And so therefore, I'm just going to generally assassinate his character. How much of that do we see going on today? People we don't agree with. People who were, I used this term last service, darlings of the media. Whether it was, and I don't care what side of the political spectrum you fall on. We're a community church. We have people who are very, very liberal, and we have people who are very, very conservative. We have people all over that spectrum, and it is not my place to tell you where you ought to fall on that spectrum. That's between you and the Lord. But what I do know is that there were people who were a month ago, darlings of the conservative movement. And now they're receiving death threats because they either said or did something or didn't say or didn't do something that someone else thought they should. And now they're the target of being assassinated, their character. And the same thing on the other side. Same thing. And we see that nobody is safe. Nobody is safe from this mob mentality of, I heard somebody said, you said this, and therefore... I'm going to get up on my soapbox and proclaim it just like I'm God. Just like I know it was a fact and I was there. And not only that, I'm the one that was injured. So I'm going to be angry about it and I'm going to be so forceful about it that it leaves no doubt or no room for comment. But that's exactly what Eliphaz's friends are doing here. They've just resorted. They can't make anything stick. They got nothing factual to hang on him. So they're just going this general assault. Job 15 verse 6. Your own mouth condemns you and not I, and your own lips testify against you. In other words, I'm going to use your own words against you. The things you've said in the past, okay, in our age of social media, 
Anybody hear or read a story about something that got pulled out? Oh, he sent this tweet, you know, at 2 a.m. eight years ago. And now I'm going to pull that out right now, and we're going to beat him to death with it. That happens every single day. Use your own words against you. But in this case, and in most cases, what we see is they take what you really said, and they'll twist it. And that's what Eliphaz is doing. He's going to take what Job had said, truth and wisdom in many cases, but he's going to twist it just so it fits in the hole that he needs it to fit in. So remember, back Job at one point had mocked his friends for being the keepers of, the, of wisdom. Remember he said, he said, oh, you, got, you are the people, not me. With you, wisdom will die. Surely you contain all the sum total of wisdom in the world. Being very sarcastic with them, but they immediately, Eliphaz here, takes that and he turns it back on Job. Job 15, 7 through 9 says this. It says, were you the first person to be born or were you brought forth before the hills? Do you hear the secret discussion of God and limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we don't know? What do you understand that we don't? He's basically saying, were you there when God created the world? Have you been there from the beginning? You know all these secrets that we, please, please share them with us. That's what he's saying. Back in Job 12, verse 3, Job said, I have intelligence like you. If you remember that. Job didn't sin out of pride. He said, he said look, you're smart, but I'm smart too, so let's figure this out. And that's what he's trying to do is have a dialogue. He's not prideful, but they take that and they twist that. Oh, you're the smartest person in the world. Job 15, 10, both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, older than your father. This is funny. This is, again, taking Job's own words from 12.12, where Job had just told them that wisdom lie with the aged, okay? And which is smart. It's as you, as you age, as you get older, hopefully you get more and more smart. Some of us just let hair turn gray so we look smarter. But he's saying that, and they're twisting that back on him because there's both older and gray-haired in that group. Basically saying, Job, you said that all wisdom lies with the aged, and we're aged. We're older than you. So take what we say as wisdom. He's twisting that again. And that's a common trick. Common trick in debate. How many debate club uh, veterans from high school out there? Oh, some of us, yeah. And, and some of you out there online are too. I was never in debate club, but I love a good argument. And I don't mean just, a, just an angry argument. I mean debating, truly debating the facts. I enjoy that. But a common trick in debate is to take something that you both agree on, getting your opponent, so to speak, to agree on something that you can both agree on, like the sun came up today, right? And they say, right. Therefore, then you go and make your whole point, which has nothing to do with the fact that the sun came up, but it's a common trick. And Eliphaz is doing that right now. In fact, he'll do that through the rest of this, of this chapter. Um, he and his friends could have really written the book on dishonest debate. Okay, and in this case, they're using that debate to accuse him. I want to take a little sidebar here really quick, just because it's something that I think all of us have run into at one point or another in our lives for sure, but in the past, maybe in the past couple days, we've seen this. If you've watched the news, if you've been on social media at all, You've seen this dynamic. 
Back in 1930, a guy wrote a book. His name is Robert Thulis. He wrote a book called Straight and Crooked Thinking. And it's a book all, really, it's about debate. And it outlines in that book dishonest tricks of argument. And, it, and he comes up with 38 of them. What I did is I boiled this down to the 10 that I'll see on any given day. Some of them are a little bit more obscure tactics, but I'm going to read these to you just really quickly. And what he does is he said, here's the tactic. Here's what it looks like. Here's how you counter that tactic. I won't go into that part, but just listen to this, these dishonest tricks. Number one, emotional language. So you say emotionally charged words in order to either quiet or throw your opponent off balance. Things like racist, socialist, Christian. You throw out things like that just to, just to get your opponent on the back foot. Faulty distribution is number two. Using terms like all are always. All of you do this. You always do that. And it may or may not be true. Maybe sometimes it is. Things like this. For example, all conservatives are white supremacists. Have you heard that lately? How about this? All liberals are closet socialists. Neither of which is true. Another one, number three, it's called reductio al absurdum, and it's a, it's a Latin word, but it means taking your opponent's statement to an absurd conclusion, to an absurd extreme, such as, if the other side wins, it'll be the end of America. I hear that every day. And it doesn't matter which side you fall on. The other side is going to ruin America. Number four, distraction or diversion, bringing up a side issue or an irrelevant topic. Okay, such as, you think the election was stolen? What do you think about puppy mills? Got nothing to do with each other. But they're trying to, to draw these two things together. Number five, non sequitur. Non sequitur means does not follow. Using an unrelated proof and applying it as if it were. Such as, it's overcast today, so we know Satan's winning. It doesn't apply. Number six, ambiguity. Discussing a thing in such broad terms as to be impossible to refute, such as what Job's friends are doing. You're suffering, so you had to have done something. May or may not be true. In this case, we know it's not true. But it's so vague as to be impossible, you can't refute it. You can't, there's no point or subject that you can refute. You just have to, okay, now what? Number seven, speculations, inferring fact from incomplete or unreliable information. Do I even have to give you an example there? Number eight, invalid authority, using false or irrelevant credentials to make your point, such as, a doctor's opinion on car repair. Doctor, he's an authority, but not on car repair. Okay, we see that. Or maybe an influencer on social media. What's their credential that helps you in this situation? Number nine, forced analogy, which is an unfair comparison. This is one I see all the time. People say in various ways that they say it, it's just like in Nazi Germany. It's not, people. If you know anything about history, there is not 
What's going on in our nation today is not like Nazi Germany. It takes a real stretch of logic to connect the dots A to B. We have to be vigilant that we don't ever allow that to happen, yes, but it's not just like Nazi Germany. Number 10, it's called ad hominem. Ad hominem means attributing prejudices, attributes, or motives to your opponent that may or may not be there. Such as, those people don't have jobs because they're lazy. We don't know that. We can't prove that. It's an unfair way to, to make a point. But back to the scripture here, Job's friends are using all of these and more in real creative ways to try and convince Job that he's in the wrong. And he remains unconvinced. And when he remains unconvinced, they just set most of that aside and they just go straight for the character assassination. You're a bad guy and we know it. We can't prove it, but we know it. And they're trying to to attack him like that. And they attack him like they're the ones who have been injured and not Job. Another common thing, you get angry and more and more outspoken like you're the one that's been hurt when you really haven't been. Back to scripture, Job 15 verse 11. Are the consolations of God too little for you or the word spoken gently to you? In other words, God has been kind to you. Isn't that enough to cause you to repent and just go ahead and and, and admit what you're doing. Again, no act, direct accusations there, just rhetorical questions. Eliphaz accuses Job of having a hard heart, of being spiritually blind. Job 15, 12, and 13. Why does your heart take you away? And why do your eyes wink? Meaning, why are you blind to what you see in front of you? That you can turn your spirit against God and produce such words from your mouth. These baseless accusations, baseless assumptions that are, again, just so vague. What has Job said that fits into that category? He's saying, you're against God and you've spoken falsely. Well, in what way exactly? It's another tactic. If Job can't be beaten, specifically, even if some of these direct character attacks aren't really hitting home, what he's going to do is create this guilt by association. He's just going to condemn all of mankind. And therefore, since you're one of mankind, you fill in the blanks. Job 15, 14, I think it's 14 to 16. What is man that he would be pure? Again, it's Job's own words coming back his way. Or that he is born of a or he who is born of a woman, that he would be righteous. Behold, he has no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is detestable and corrupt, a person who drinks malice like water. Again, he's taking what Job had already said and twisting it. But in Job 7.17, Job says, what is man that you exalt him and that you are concerned about him? Job is saying, you created the heavens and earth and yet somehow you care about me? It's a place of praise. And Job's like, I don't understand why you would care about me more than the dirt on your feet, but you do. And that is amazing to me. Job says it from a place of of praising God. Eliphaz is just condemning all men as dirty. He's just saying all men are like that. Therefore, since you are a man, all men are dirty. Therefore, you're dirty. And he's not wrong, but the point he's trying to make is that Eliphaz has done something to cause this. 
The facts are accurate, but they're not complete when they apply them to Job. So he can't, he can't gain any traction here. He keeps trying all these different angles, different things. He's really not gaining any traction. So what he does is he combines a whole bunch of these separate tactics into like this potion that he's hoping is going to hit Job where he, where he sleeps and hoping maybe that Job will connect the dot himself. So listen to this, starting with uh, chapter 15, Job, uh, Job 15, verse 17. I will tell you, listen to me, and what I have seen, I will also declare. Meaning, based on my experience, listen, this is the truth. What wise people have told and have not concealed from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given, and no stranger passed among them. He's basically saying, the wisdom of our fathers, before anybody else came into our land and polluted our wisdom. Let me, let me give it to you straight from the ancients. And again, this is something that Job had already said. They're just twisting it. But he goes on and he says, here's what, he's not saying, you've done this, therefore, he's going to just paint this picture for the next several verses of, of this mythological wicked man with the insinuation that that's you, Job. Verse 20, the wicked person writhes in pain all his days. Verse 21, sounds of terror are in his ears. While he is at peace, the destroyer comes among him. Verse 22, he was destined for the sword. Verse 23, he wanders about for food, saying, where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is at hand. Verse 24, distress and anguish terrify him. 25, because he has reached out his hand against God and is arrogant towards the Almighty. Verse 29, he will not become rich, nor will his wealth endure. And then finally, verse 30, he will not escape from darkness. He just talks about he. He's not even pointing at Job anymore. He's just making this general statement about things. Since Job is wicked and dirty, this is what you can expect. And he finally gets the last thing, his little parting shot on the way out there. Job 15, um, 34 and 35. For the company of the godless is barren, and fire consumes the tents of the corrupt. They conceive, him, they conceive harm and give birth to wrongdoing, and their mind prepares deception. Who is this, again, who is this they, this, this generic they? And he's not, he's not wrong in what he says. But his speech, what he says, though he's angry and he's very certain about what he's saying and he's saying it loudly and he's very forcefully trying to drill that into Job, it's empty of any specifics, any specific accusations, just, just generalities that are impossible to refute and worse yet, they're unhelpful for any kind of correction. They just generally throw out these things. And if the purpose, as we go back to the beginning of the book, when I, when I told you what my hypothesis was for the reason of the book of Job, among others, but my main one is that God is using these trials, these things that come Job's way, this ability uh, the, that he gave Satan to test Job. He's doing that in order to bring Job to a higher level of both reliance on God trust in God, and to a higher level of spiritual maturity to prepare him for something. We don't know what. Scripture doesn't tell us. But I believe that God is using this to prepare him for something greater. But if that's the purpose behind all this, then, then Job's friends, this character assassination, these, these attacks that keep coming his way, are really 
the prototype for what Satan does today. How many times do we see that? And it seems like the more somebody rises to the top of of whatever it is their field, whether it's a theologian, I have so many pastor friends who are being attacked on a daily basis with the most vile things people saying to them because they are trying to apply the word of God to what we're going through now. And I'm not exempt from that. It happens to me too. But the point is, that falls more into Satan's tactics than God's tactics. That's not what. So let me ask you this. If we preached this, and those of you who have been with us from the beginning, just imagine this. If you've read the book of Job, maybe you haven't and you're going to, the first two chapters kind of lays out the behind the scenes, kind of the prologue for everything, what's happening behind the scenes. It's where we find out that God says Job is blameless. It's where we find out that God gives Satan permission to attack Job for no particular reason other than the purposes that God has for this, that Job hasn't done anything. It lays all that out in the first two chapters. What if those first two chapters weren't in this book? What if all you knew is Job had everything and suddenly it was taken away from him? And his friends come in and start spouting wisdom to him, which is not wrong necessarily. And it sounds good to me. It makes sense given what I see Job is going through. How many of us, me included, would fall right in line with Job's friends? In fact, maybe be cheering them on. Ooh, that was a good one, Eliphaz. Accuse all men of being dirty because he knows he's a man and he knows he's done something. I would be there. But we're given those first two chapters to show us you're not God. You don't know everything that goes on behind the scenes. Lacking proof or facts, we don't let that stop us from being dead set certain of our point of view. That's exactly what Job's friends are doing here. Every day, I see that. I see truth being sacrificed on the altar of idolatry. And that's right, I said idolatry. So many of us are following, we're following paths that lead us into idolatry. And I know that sounds harsh, but let me, let me explain that a little bit. Don't shut me down. Listen to this. For many, politics has become an idol. For many. That doesn't mean ignore it. That doesn't mean don't look at it, don't participate in it but it's become an idol. I'm going to explain that in a minute. Civil rights have become an idol. American nationalism has become an idol. Look, I consider myself one of the most patriotic Americans that I know. I love this country. I love the ideals that it stands for. And right or wrong, and we make mistakes. Just like everybody else, this country makes mistakes. Some are big mistakes. Some are little mistakes. But we always, without fail, try to get back to that path of where we ought to be. And that's the best that I think anybody can aspire to. We'll make mistakes, but we're going to try to get in our hearts in the right place. I love this country and everything that it stands for, but it has become an idol to many. I'm going to explain what that is here in just a minute. 
Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are sacrificing Job on their altar of religion, which is their idol. Meaning they can't accept. In order to protect their treasured beliefs, these paradigms that they live their life through, in order to protect that, they are unwilling, and in many cases, just absolutely unable to accept any challenge to that. They don't want to hear it. They can't look at it. Even if you showed it to them, they may not be able to see it. And that's what idolatry is. And one symptom of idolatry is that it forces you, by its nature, forces you to set aside every other value that you might have and sacrifice it on the altar of that idol, whatever that thing is. Values like this, as a Christian, values that we should, for the most part, share, to love your neighbor, to speak the truth, to display moral character. How about the teachings of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount? General Christian principles that we try and live by, and even the U.S. Constitution. And those are all sacrificed on a daily basis in the name of holding up our idol, whatever our idol is, and proving that to be the truth. And that is exactly what Satan does. Satan is the accuser, and he is the father of lies, and one of his main tactics is to sow division and mistrust among the body of Christ so that we can no longer be a unified force in the world to accomplish his purposes. And when he gets us fighting amongst ourselves, liberals, Democrats, everywhere, uh, liberals and Democrats, liberals, conservatives, Republicans, Democrats, wherever you fall on that scale, you can still love God. And you can still want God's will to be done. And we might see things a little bit differently, but if we fight amongst ourselves, we are not unified under the, under the banner of Jesus. We're unified under the banner of whatever our thing is. And I don't want to be guilty of that. So before you decide, before you decide that you need to judge the character or that you're equipped to judge the character of anyone on any side. I don't care if you look at it and say, well, I can see by the fruit of his life, he's that. Or I can see by the things that they say that she is that. Before you do that, ask yourself, do you have all the information that God has? Because just like the book of Job, we would fall right in line with his friends and judging him based on what we see happening in his life. And in some cases, even the things he's said but we don't have the information that God has. And when we take that step, we are declaring that we know everything we need to know to act as God and to judge as God does. The most vile accusations I see out there today, specifics are almost always lacking, so there's no no real need for proof. It's just general character assassination, general statements. And like Job's friends, they treat him as fact, without having any real proof. Things like, he's a bad person. She's un-American. He's a commie. She's a commie. They're stealing our rights. Where did this word commie resurrect from? I hadn't heard the word commie since I was in elementary school, I think. And now it's being thrown around like it's just a thing. What even does that mean? 
what does that mean? And yet we're throwing it out there like it's a, a badge that, that declares somebody is, is Satan himself. Church, here's a specific charge that should concern you. As a follower of Jesus Christ, as a professed Christian, here's a charge that should absolutely concern you and it should consume your thinking. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're not on this earth to curse the darkness, but to shine the light in spite of it. That's why we're here. And some people have asked, and rightly so, they ask this question, but what about those obviously bad people that we can all agree on, which by the way is never a true statement, we can all agree that they're bad people and they deserve to be judged. What about those people? Here's what scripture says about that. Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Anybody know who's speaking in this section of Scripture? Jesus. Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So here's the only, what I think, the only proper response to dealing with those people that we would be tempted to dismiss as evil. Again, no matter what side you're on, the other side's evil. And if we're tempted, let's fall back to Scripture. Matthew 5, 43, 48. Again, words of Christ here. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That should be our response as a Christian. Need another one? Here's Paul, the Apostle Paul, Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Still not convinced? Still looking for that loophole that allows us to maybe act in the flesh and not by, by the teachings of the word? Here's Proverbs 24, 17 through 20. You can read it on your own, but I'll read it to you. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls and do not let your heart rejoice when he stumbles. Otherwise, the Lord will see and be displeased and turn his anger away from him. Do not get upset because of evildoers or be envious of the wicked. For there will be no future for the evil person. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. That's a proverb basically saying, don't rejoice when your enemy fails. God will handle that. You keep your heart in the right place. God's got that. Here's another proverb, 25 verses 21 to 22. This one on screen I think we have. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. The living water of Christ is the best thing we could offer to our enemy. Church, this is not, these are not just good ideas that I read in a blog this morning before I came on. This is the word of God. And when we judge those that we disagree with, that they're not just wrong, but they're evil. When we make that judgment, we take all of our human wisdom and all of the wisdom given to us in Scripture, and we reduce that down to an if-then binary. You know, computer programmers out there knowing an if-then statement? If this happens, then that happens. We take all that wisdom and just reduce it down to that. Cold, inflexible, and absolutely unwilling or unable or unequipped to apply love to any situation. The words of Christ 
are reduced in that case just to a collection of suggestions. Good ideas. Job remained blameless through all of these trials and was ultimately praised by God because he understood this. Spoiler alert, he makes it through these trials. But this is what Job himself says towards the end of this, of this book. We'll get there. Job 31, 29 and 30. Job himself says this, Have I rejoiced at the misfortune of my enemy or become excited when, his ev- when evil found him? No, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for his life in a curse. And we know that God praises Job for that viewpoint, going through the worst hurt in his life, being, being afflicted for no particular reason that he can see, and yet holding true to what God says. If we're going to reduce our responses to a simple binary equation, if then, let it be this, if there's darkness, bring light. And if there's hate, bring love. I think we can stand on that rock and be certain. Amen? Would you pray with me, church? Father God, we just thank you that you don't see us through the lens that others around us do. You don't see us through the lens of a careless word or a belief that doesn't line up with yours. You see us through the blood of Jesus. And we are thankful for that. Lord, help us to see others that way. Help us to set aside the pride and the idolatry that lets us think that we know more than the person next to us. We know more than the other person does, and therefore, we're equipped to judge. Lord, we repent of elevating ourselves to that place, of creating an idol out of the things we think we know. Father, help us to see others the way you see them. When necessary, show us the things that we need to know on how to deal with somebody. When necessary, show us not to deal with somebody. Whatever it is, God, whatever your will is, we know that that's where there's life. And so rather than to bring death and division and sacrifice them as our idols, Lord, help us to bring peace. Help us to bring peace. Your word brings peace, and that's what we want in these times more than any other, but always, Father. And Lord, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, If you're here in-house and you want to take communion with us, on the back table we have the single-serve cups. If you didn't grab one on the way in, you can grab one now. If you're at home, grab your supplies. We take communion... We take it every time we gather together and we do it. We do it because by taking communion corporately or singly at home, by taking that, you're aligning yourself with the sacrifice that Jesus made for you and the reasons that he did that for you. The body represents the body broken for you. The punishment taken in your place He took that upon himself so that you didn't have to. The punishment that we deserve, he took. And if you accept that, take the body. The blood of Christ, the blood of the new covenant, which thankfully shed on the cross for us 
to make us righteous and clean. When God sees us, he does not see that us through the mistakes that we make, through the mistakes we'll probably make before we even make it home today. Father sees us through the blood of Christ, and through that we are reconciled to him, and I am thankful for that, and if you are, take the blood. Lord, we praise you this day and every day. Let our lives be a reflection of who you are, not the world in us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.